Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Coffee and Open Source, a place to meet some new friends, have some great conversations, and maybe learn something along the way. I'm your host, Isaac Levin. If you're enjoying the interviews here, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, wherever you're watching or listening. Also, if you're interested or know any folks that would be interested in coming on chatting, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. My handle there is IsaacR11. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get to our guest, and I'm super excited for my guest today. My guest today is the one, the only, Glenn Block. Glenn, do you want to say hello? Introduce yourself. Hey, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you. The one and the only. The one and the only Isaac I only, know, I only know one Glenn Block, so I know. That's true. There is only one. Well, there is actually more than one. If you go on Google uh, and search my name, you'll see a bunch of stuff from me, but there's also like Glenn Block, the orchestra like director, and there's a couple of us out there, but you know, yeah. not many. Yeah, well, all the Glenn Blocks. Like I have a very, I have a very popular name on the East Coast. So like, you know, the, there's like seven pages of Levin's in the phone book, like in New York City. So, so my name is a bit more, uh, I guess, common, I guess you could say. Um, I don't know if you know, I grew up in New York. Okay. That's great. That's the accent you probably hear under the semi West Coast accent that has developed over the last 20 years. Yeah. And, And I imagine when you go, like when you get dropped back into like, New York City or whatever, like the real accent just comes right through, right? Or if I talk to somebody, like if I talk to somebody from New York or talk about New York, yeah. I just I just go back. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty easy. I grew up in Long Island, by the way. Yeah, excellent. Well, do you want to just give a quick intro to the folks who might not know who you are? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Glenn. Uh, let's see. Um, been in the tech industry for a while. Started off my career as a software engineer um, and then moved into product. Um, uh, a big turning point for me was when I joined Microsoft. Um, so my first 10 years of my career uh, was uh, working as a software developer for various different companies. Um, ended up moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, getting laid off within three months. So that was the fun startup life back in those days, back in like 2001, 2002. Um, and then uh, ended up uh, going to Microsoft and everything changed actually after that and got to work on some really fun and impactful things. Sure. One of the things people know me most for is I was the PM who kind of drove ASP.NET Web API. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the big, big things that uh, helped get off the ground at Microsoft and also did a lot of work around bringing Node.js development to the cloud. Um, did a lot of engagement with the Node community and bringing Node to Azure. Um, and uh, yeah, so now I've kind of moved more into the leadership side of, 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 of technology over the last five to 10 years. Um, most recently, I was a VP of product at a startup, and now I'm kind of in a Glenn 3.0, working on some interesting sure. things to be determined. Uh, and then I guess the other thing is, as I said, I grew up on the East Coast. I lived in Seattle for 17 years, um, and we recently moved to the Bay Area, which is actually a return for me because mm-hmm. I was in the Bay Area for five years before moving to Seattle. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think we're going to dive into a lot of the stuff that you've done over your career and some of the things that you're really passionate about. But I like to start our conversations with, you know, a tech origin story. So, like, do you remember a point in time where you came across technology 
or you know computers in general and you realize like this is the thing that i i have a passion for this i'm really interested in this and this is something that i want to kind of continue learning more and more about yeah so um 100 so i started coding when i was like seven um nobody in my family was into using computers um, and i'll never forget that uh, I went to the library and found this book. Uh, I used to love reading. This is at seven. Like no, I, I went to the library and there was this book on computer literacy for kids. And in it, it talked about the basics of like how computers work, binary, um, a little bit of basic, very little bit of basic. And I just got fascinated by it. I honestly think that was the first hook um, and then I ended up like really getting excited about that. And I think my mom got me to go to a computer camp because I told her I was so excited about computers and, um, yeah, it just took off from there. I would say by like 11, 10, 11, I used to code, like I got my first computer, which was a Vic 20 at like nine years old. Um, and I used to code like all the time and my dad didn't understand it, but he used to see me and say, that's your future. Yeah. And I think by around 10 years old, I kind of felt like this is going to be what I'm going to do. I don't know how, but somehow I'm going to make it work. And I just kind of continually was drawn to it from that point on and, and, and got more and more into it by my teens. I was running bullet, a bulletin board system. And I was doing a lot of like in those days, we didn't have the Internet, but I would call up other bulletin boards and I had my community of kind of hackers <laughs> I talked to. Sure. And uh, yeah, so it was a very young age, I think, that I just fell into it. Yeah. Um, I was a very, believe it or not, back in those days, I was a very introverted kid. A lot of people because now I'm like an extreme extrovert. But in those days, I was a big introvert. And so it was easy for me to like use computers as a thing because I didn't really want to like deal with people sure. uh, other than sure. through a computer. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's definitely something to like, you know, once you find like your community of folks that kind of have shared interests is when you start to kind of be a bit more comfortable and that, you know, that that feeling of needing to be introverted kind of goes away and it never really goes away. Like I occasionally, I'm an extreme extrovert as well, but occasionally like, I'll be like, I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, I just want to sit, sit in my office. Like I don't even want to talk to my kids. Like I don't, that's a terrible thing to say, but you know how it is. Um, I think in general, I, too, I, I get that. Um, yeah. I, I really get that. And um, coding when I used to be like really into coding, mm -hmm. Coding has a way of pulling you in, yeah. right? And like you get in the zone where you don't want to be interrupted. And I used to get so deep into it that even if I wasn't wearing headphones, it would almost be like I had headphones. Like people would talk yeah. to me. I would not respond. I was sure. like, sure. I'm just doing, you know, and unfortunately, like you said, even my family. Yeah, like yeah. I have memories of my daughter when she was like two or three wanting to play with me and I was just like really like act you know I was acting as if yeah. I had headphones on but I didn't yeah like this is probably a, a way off tangential thing but I think that you know that's one of the reasons like I feel like in the last few years a lot of folks that have in the tech industry have kind of came out and said that they have some 
form of neurodiversity, right? Like I think that there's something to something to say is that tech kind of enables a certain kind of person to be really successful. Like folks yeah. that have ADHD, folks that have OCD, folks that have some form of autism. Like I think that there's a lot of traits that folks in tech have that if you kind of were to do like a Venn diagram, like, oh, like, you know, like the need to focus, the need yeah. to um, be able to drill down, like you said, like the, the tune out the noise. Um, and then also like, you know, there are some things that people in tech have a really hard time with, like context switching or, you know, communicating effectively to all sorts of audiences, right? And and I've noticed this and as somebody with ADHD, I've realized it too. It's like, oh, like there's a lot of people in tech that are neurodiverse that probably don't know about it, don't care to know about it. But I've seen a lot of people kind of have this awakening or this kind of this discovery about themselves just because we've been more open about having the conversation. Yeah. And so I've been pretty open about the fact that, you know, in the last year and a half, I got diagnosed with ADHD. Yep. A lot of people that know me would not be surprised <laughs> sure. about yeah, yeah. that. And to, to your point, I know I've had so many people who've come out when I said it and said, oh, I have it too, or thank you for sharing. And I talked about my challenges and my superpowers, right? Because I think the um, a great book that I, I read on my journey, because I used to be what I would call an anti-ADHD, or I like, because yeah. when I grew up and you came in the East Coast, I think we're not so far off from each other. But when I grew up on the East Coast, um, there was a lot of scares around Ritalin. Um, yes. and, and ADHD was really like, was not treated well. Um, and I wasn't diagnosed then. But because of that, I had all these fears about ADHD. And my daughter was diagnosed, she's 18 now, when she was nine. Um, and that was a real moment for yeah. me. And I remember the first thing I said when my wife told me was, I was like, she's not getting medication, right? Yeah. Until she was old enough and then decided she wanted it. But I learned a lot watching her. Like we can just learn so much if we open our minds. I had a very fixed mindset then and did a full like 180 to the point of finally finding out myself that I have it, embracing it. Um, getting an ADHD coach. And, and to your point, I think there's some people that think that, you know, like tech is just randomizing and because of that, like it almost breeds ADHD. But the more sure. I've learned about it, it's like, no, like ADHD is like a neural problem. It's like yeah. how your synapses, you know, how the neurons fire and all of that. Is, is, is tech distracting? Sure. Is it randomizing? Sure. But the difference is, like if you took away that randomization for the person that doesn't have ADHD, they'd be fine. The person who has ADHD, it doesn't matter if you take away that, that's still there. That's still the way they're going to operate. And I think what you're saying is true. I like the way you put it, which is not that tech is making people have it, but that tech by its nature is something that many people with ADHD can thrive in. Yeah. Um, but then there's many that fall through the cracks. Yeah. But to your, like for me, one of my superpowers, like I like having multiple things going on at the same time. Yeah. I'm never happy just working on one thing. I will, if you give me one thing, I will find other things because yeah. I'm just not, I get bored. I'm not satisfied. The other side is I can do really well at keeping multiple balls in the air. But I also have to be careful because I Drop can spread myself 
bin and have that, have that problem. So it's yeah. like there's superpower there. And but thank you for sharing on that. By yeah. the way, it's really something I've tried to be really vocal about as I've learned. And I do think that society has grown and progressed. I also feel that in as much as what you're saying is true about how there's parts of tech that appear really well, tech in corporate America sure. is not really well structured for people, my opinion, for people yeah. that suffer from ADHD. I've, I've been able to survive, I've been able to do well, but it has been hugely taxing in ways that I think people that don't have ADHD don't suffer in the same way. Things that for them might be really simple are really hard for me and it might look like oh glenn's just being difficult it's like no this is difficult for yeah. me <laughs> I, I have this conversation with people all the time about like you know you know twitter tech twitter or, or tech social media whatever right like that is just a very very small microcosm of just tech in general right like you know uh, our, our friend Scott Hanselman always talks about like the, the dark matter developer, right? Like mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, you have all these folks that all they're doing is just clocking in and that's great. Like if you can make a, if you can take care of your family off of being in tech and you don't have a passion for it, that's totally fine. Uh, but I think one of the things, problems that I fall into occasionally, and I think a lot of people that are active on Twitter or active on Reddit or active on discord or some of these other, you know, social media outlets is, the expect the assumption that everybody in tech should just get it, right? Like, yeah. oh, I get it. Everybody in tech should get it. But there's so many yeah. people in tech that don't even, you know, frankly care, right? Well, and I think a word that is being starting to get used more in tech that wasn't even a word that existed years ago, empathy. Yes. Right? Like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the yeah. It's like the sole idea of like yeah, because I remember and you've you've been there as somebody who's had to build line of business applications, applications that weren't like for millions of people. There are for like tens of people in an organization, sure. right? Yeah, in a in like, an organization, help yeah. run the business, yeah, yeah. or fifty and, people. And or, I remember yeah. when I would do when I would, when I was working those sort of jobs and building those sort of apps. Like, what did I care about the least? The way it looked, like ed, like specific edge cases, right? Like, let's just get the let's just get the thing to the customer. Right. Yeah. And the, the expectation is the customer would work around the the worms or work around the whatever. Right. They would right. figure they would figure out how get to, it work to market the system. Quick, get it to them quickly. Yeah. yeah. How 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 would they like how do they navigate this system that has flaws? And now like we we're seeing now, especially like in the in realms of both accessibility in realms of just great user experience, like. You have to build these sort of things as tenants into when you build software, right? Which, you know, 15 years ago, like if you, if, if you had a person, a developer on your team that like knew CSS kind of well, like you were leaps and beyonds better than like a lot of other teams that were around, right? Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, when you talk about like talking about the empathy thing, even myself, you know, and we can learn and we can grow. And one of the things that I've really uh, taken to over the last, I'd say, four to five years is this whole idea of growth mindset. You know, mm -hmm. that I, I mean, this real idea that, you know, we're not just fixed who we are. We can change. We can learn. And early on in my career, I was not very empathetic, like. 
I remember interviewing people and having a really high standard and just yeah. being ready to just like kick them out of the interview because they couldn't meet the bar sure. that we were looking for. And it was like, there was very little empathy there, right? Yeah. <laughs> there was empathy for you if you were like me. Oh, if you sure. were a yeah. then we'd be like, oh, we're like the small circle of people. You know, I was the, in, in before I moved on to like big companies, I'm talking about like when my first part of my career as a software engineer, um, yeah, would often be very arrogant, right? Like, are you yeah. good enough to work with me? If you were, I had empathy for you. And we had empathy for each other because the rest of the world were idiots. And we were yeah, yeah. not truly idiots, but, yeah. you know, it was like, yeah. And I think the, you know, we're kind of now trying to back ourselves out of the problem that we introduced ourselves by only hiring people that were like us. Correct. Right? Like now we're in this world Created where. Created huge problems. Yeah. So I think, you know, how can we get more people that don't think like us, people that don't have the same background as us? How do we get them to thrive in tech and be interested in tech 100%. in general? Because I think there is this assumption, even with all the strides that have been made in the last few years, that like tech is just not obtainable for some people, right? Yeah. Well, and often that is because of access issues, not because yes. of ability. Oh, yes, um, definitely. It's so much of it is access, right? Like, I always like I look at myself. I'm not like the best engineer in the world. I'm I'm decent. I know I'm pretty good, but I know there were people that better than me that didn't get the opportunities that I got. Why? A lot of things fell into place. Who my family was, my skin color, my gender. I mean, there's just so many things. And a big one that I've learned about, especially as I've done more and more mentoring and sponsorship, is this idea of being in the room. Just knowing certain people is an access thing. Yeah. So many of my opportunities, I mean, at Microsoft, for example, you know, I moved around so many times and a lot of those opportunities came through people I knew. Well, if others were not like in the room where those conversations were happening, they don't get those opportunities. Um, and so one of the things I try to do now is to speak up for those people, mm -hmm. um, you know, to bring them into the room, even if they're not physically in the room. Yeah, there's... So many built-in things that so many built-in inequities that have it's not ability, right? People say like even when people say, "Oh, there's not enough good engineers," you know, there's the pipeline question, of course, that we can yeah. go on the, that one forever. But it's like, oh, there's not enough. But it's like, okay, but is that because people don't have the ability to do it, or is that because people have not been given access to the resources yeah. that yeah. enabled them to get the skills? Those are two different things and people oh. like to lament it and make it like it's one and not the other but reality of it is yeah it's 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 a system and access which is the big problems yeah i think there there's a couple there's a, a ton of stuff in this particular space that we can talk about and i think one of the things that's always very interesting to me is like yeah we talk all the time about there not being enough developers there's too many tech jobs right and i think that we have this bias that like we need everybody to be like you know, the greatest microservice Kubernetes front end engineer, like you need all the skills to be successful. Right. And I'm very much of the mindset that if you introduce somebody that cares to something, if they, if they're going to care and they're going to do what they can to help. Right. We don't need everybody on the planet to be the best developer on the planet, but what we do need is people that care and have that empathy. And I think what we the struggle that we have a lot 
is that in a lot of sectors of tech in the in the broader like corporate tech industry, there's not a lot of empathy. So you get a lot of and this is going to be a hot take, but like developers that quote unquote aren't that good, right? And what I mean by not that good is that they don't care, they don't want to learn new things, they um, are challenging to work with, and that and. I say, even though you can be successful in this sort of career, it doesn't mean that this career is probably the best for you, right? Yeah. And I think that it goes both ways, which I think is really, really challenging. Yeah. By the way, there's some work happening outside my house. Is it noisy or is nope. it okay? No, nope. I, I can hear. I, I heard something, but I wouldn't worry about it. It's not like it's. All right. You know. Yeah. All right, that's good because it's 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 getting a little bit louder. But this mic should is a spatial mic, so hopefully it's not picking up all that sound. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are people in our industry, a large portion of our industry that I would say has a very fixed mindset. You know, this is who I am. Why am I going to change? Right. Like, what's this pronouns thing about? I don't you know, what's this? This thing? what's yeah. this? You know, and it's yeah. like and, and it's and it's it's kind of like I have my beliefs. I'm going to stick to them. You know, and it's like, but the world is changing, right? And and the world is evolving, and you need to evolve with it. And uh, but we've got a lot of people in our industry who don't want to, who are just like, I'm just the way I am. I'm not going to change. You know, you try to make me change, I'll just go somewhere else where I don't need to change. And again, like we, you know, and when you when you look at this whole concept of empathy, and you look at even words like inclusion. That includes everybody, right? So it's like people can have different thoughts, but it's like, is your way of thinking getting in the way of other people being successful? Yes. That's when it's kind of not okay. And of course, a lot of this stuff is not, you know, like a line in the sand. There's a lot mm -hmm. of just grayness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, it's, it's definitely challenging. And I think the more and more that we just are open and talk about it, right? Like there's going to be a point in time 20 years from now where I guess, you know, the, when the next, when the next generation are the, the key demographic for developers and the older generations, folks like us are, are cascading into our, into our retirements or in your case, enjoying your retirement. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be very, very interesting to see like what the landscape looks like, right? Or, I, I'm happy to see it yeah. changing. Honestly, yeah. I'm happy yeah. to see the old things, even the things that I used to do being questioned yeah. and people yeah. saying like, hey, like just because we did something for a long time didn't make it right. And yeah. I think that's another thing you get. You know, it's almost like the in my uh, when I went back to school in my executive MBA, we learned a lot about sunk cost. You know, this idea of sunk cost, like I put so much in. Yeah. And it's like at the end of the day, sunk cost has nothing to do with success. The fact yeah. that you put a bunch of money into a thing and a bunch of time and resource doesn't mean it's the right thing to keep going. Right. Yeah. And I think in a different way, people have this sunk cost idea of like, this is who I've been. This is how our industry has been. Why should we change yeah. it? Right. It's like, we put so much in yeah. and this often comes up from the people who are not feeling the impacts Right. It's like yeah. they're in a place where like like somebody's I'll, I'll, I'll just use a perfect example. And I know a lot of people said it was like but like when GitHub decided to change, you know, from master as the branch, yeah. mm -hmm. 
and like all these people came out and like, no, like you should. But then it's like they're not the people that are affected yeah. and that are triggered when the term is used. Yes. But people that were who were saying, well, I really don't feel great seeing this, right? And 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 it's like just an ex a small example of where it's like you got the one side of people who are like, oh, can't we like move on? Like this is stupid, blah, 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 who are not the people generally that are affected other than being affected in changing the way they do things to accommodate those who are feeling impacted and affected oh, it's just sure. really that plays out over and over again whenever yeah. change uh you know yeah, whenever I there's think, change yeah it, it's very very interesting because in general like the people that are usually the loudest are the people that are probably the least affected by some particular change right I agree. like there's a, there's always this thing it's like why is the minority always the loudest you know, you have this across every spectrum of society, whether it be <laughs> politics or religion or whatever, right? The people that like, it affects the least and like are the, are the most the smallest vehement groups. opposers. Yes. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, because people, because, and that gets that whole concept of privilege, right? Because yeah. they can't. Yeah. Because like everything's okay. I always use this example of like, oh, I was having a great day, you know, like before I met you, before we talked. Yeah. And suddenly Ugh. making me feel bad and telling me that the things I'm doing, I need to change. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to go away now and shut yeah. you off, shut you down because yeah. I, don't, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned something that I, you know, that I thought was, was kind of interesting. And I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, you mentioned GitHub and how GitHub has made some changes to be yeah. more inclusive. Like you were a key part of like the .NET team and their kind of adoption of GitHub, right? Like I was definitely part yeah. involved with that. Um, yeah. I'd love to kind early, of hear your early, thoughts early, about, early yeah. days. Yeah. I mean, I joined not just, not really as well. I worked on the managed extensibility framework and that was before GitHub was even really a huge thing. At that time yep. we had CodePlex, yep. but I was very involved with bringing the first parts of the .NET framework to open source. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, later on, of course, when, when you know, as GitHub really blew up, um, you know, I worked in the Azure team um, on the Azure SDK for Node.js, which was all built on GitHub. And that was like a huge thing. Of course, then MVC came over and, you know, Managing Sensibility Framework ultimately kind of went there and Web API all went there. They all went there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, obviously you know uh history being what it is right like i think that now looking back like oh that's a no-brainer like obviously like doing sort of these things but i imagine internally there was all sorts of like lovely discussions about how like how is this going to affect the way people work how is this going to affect public perception you know i think um you know full disclosure both Glenn and I in the past have worked for Microsoft. We now no longer work at Microsoft and we're going to talk about Microsoft for a second. Like uh, Microsoft kind of has this, uh, I guess you could say, and this is not the best way to say it, but baggage ar around yeah. certain Linux, like certain, Linux is a yes. cancer. Let's yeah, just like, call it what it is. Yeah, I mean, around, it, wasn't, it wasn't hidden. Yeah. So, but there, <laughs> but there is cancer, these, Linux these, is a cancer. Yeah, but there's these specific things that I think Microsoft in the, in the past would like to have done differently. And, They've spent the last 
20 years or so attempting to rectify some of those things. And you were, you know, like you mentioned, sort of a part of that. Like, yeah, what, you know, from your perspective, obviously you don't need to, to share every gory detail, but I'd love to kind of hear like what those yeah, conversations I... were like. Like, was it, you know, I imagine a lot of people were very for it. And a lot of people were, I don't see the value in this, not against it, but I just don't see the value in it. I think so, a lot is a stretch. Sure. <laughs> Early on, there were some big champions and yeah. definitely have to call out Scott Guthrie because almost everything I did around open source, Scott had some, you know, he was there like, yeah. and kind of like looking at that, uh, a good friend of mine who's uh, not at Microsoft anymore, Brian Goldfarb, also were big, you know, they were big supporters and saw the potential and saw the richness of like, hey, if we have a more open community and how we can leverage open source, how it's good for the industry, you know, and looking at other communities and other languages. And, you know, obviously, I think a big shakeup for Microsoft actually was Rails. Um, Rails was a huge shakeup because um, lots of Microsoft developers were getting on board with this Rails thing. There was interest. There was interest in a different way of doing things. Yeah. And it was very open source sort of driven, lighter weight tools. Um, you know, even ASP.NET MVC, I mean, came out of like, you know, how can we do something better that is more on par with what people are looking at at things yep. like for like Rails. Um, there was a lot of fear. I think in those days, the core of Microsoft was Windows. That's really changed. Or you could say it's changed in the sense that Azure is Windows of the cloud, right? Some sure, people yeah. say that. But there was a lot of fear. Um, I remember particularly when we were trying to bring uh, MEF to open source, um, you know, to release it under an open source license, there was pushback of like, like we should make this only work on Windows. Right. Like um, we, we and, and we had a prop. We originally released it. We released the source under a license that only allowed it to work on Windows and got a yeah. huge pushback from Miguel, who, you know, at that time was the head of the Mono project and was not part of Microsoft. Um, although, you know, later on that all changed. Um, and that's how Miguel and I first became friends after I blogged on, you know, the managed extensibility framework and becoming, you know, I think I called it open source or released the source. And, you know, he's like, he's like, don't use the managed extensibility framework. I'm like, oh, thanks. I'm a PM on that team. Exactly. But I think there was fear. I think it's like people are afraid of things they don't know. I think it was like a business fear, right? Like, will this hurt Windows? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, at that in those days, I was like a you know pretty low level PM within Microsoft, and to be brought into this conversation with a lot of really big people uh, talking, you know, weighing these things out and being like, wow, I'm working on, you know, this It's one of the cool things about working at companies like Microsoft, even yeah. if you're fairly junior, you can work on things that attract a lot of attention and that push a lot of buttons. Um, so I think that was just fear. Um, I think it was, you know, like as Satya came in and obviously Guthrie, pl Guthrie, pl Scott planted a lot of the foundational seeds, um, for a while, but when Satya came in, really from the top down in the company, really giving it 
a new level of energy. And I think, you know, like during the early days, I think it was like growing and there were champions that were getting on board, but you still had very strong people who were very much against it, like Sanofsky, for example. Um, I think over time and when 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 finally like the CEO of Microsoft yeah. was like, we're going to do this then people who before could like yell and didn't want to get in line with that vision had no choice like either get in line or go somewhere else um so it was interesting to watch because in the early days it was definitely like a lot of people didn't understand it um you know even a lot of the hardcore microsoft like community people there were a lot who thought open source was awful they were just towing the windows line like the microsoft you know the traditional microsoft line but over time that started to change even in the dotnet community like more and more people in the dotnet community started to look i think java had a huge influence sure. like people looked at what was going on in java and the way everything was like a library that you could get and how in the microsoft community in the early days it was pretty much like the major things came out of microsoft there were third parties that you could buy stuff for like controls there were things microsoft didn't really care yeah. about like sheridan controls like oh you know graphic control. but like a lot of the core stuff was all microsoft yeah. baked you into the framework Java, yeah it's not that way yeah. like yeah. there were large open source projects that pretty much the whole java community used and i think more and more and the other thing i think too is that microsoft was always very tooling based heavily tooling based and Microsoft can do great tools, but tools can also get in the way of almost like a lack of a better word, lipstick on a pig yeah, terminology, sure. you know, kind of, um, just kind of, uh, taking something that is messy and cleaning it up with tools, but then you still end up with something that's messy after the fact, even though the yeah. tools got you there faster. Whereas like in the Java world, there was a lot more about like, patterns embracing like design patterns and ways of doing things that were more maintainable that didn't require tons of tooling to do it and so my first kind of intro to that actually was when i joined the patterns and practices team because the patterns and practices team used to be a big thing at microsoft because it was in those days like the dotnet framework shipped every three years um, there was no open source, no anything. And the patterns and practices team was there as like this team to kind of help bridge the gaps between things that are not in the platform, but that are emerging as real exciting patterns outside of the Microsoft ecosystem, like in the Java world and design patterns was a big central to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think over time things started to shift. And with the power structure changing, you know, like there was a bottoms up approach that was happening and I was part of that. And then Hanselman came in and was part of that. And Phil Hack was part of that. And there were a few other things that happened like, you know, Iron Ruby and Iron Python and some of these other efforts. But, um, but once it got to that critical mass, and I think Azure actually had a huge part to, uh, Microsoft's adoption of the cloud and the realization that, you know, any stacks that we don't support, that's just business we're saying goodbye to. Yes. Like, yes. if you're running your stuff in our cloud, we want you to be able to run whatever you can 
because if we don't do that, you're not going to want to use it, right? And then you're just going to go bring your business elsewhere. So I actually think that although there were all the seeds, I think it was the shift to the cloud at Microsoft that really propelled the adoption of open source. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you definitely talk about the you know the changes that have happened, right? Like in the last 10 years, like we've gone from .NET being Windows only, you know, you basically three year three year release cycles. <laughs> yeah, three year release cycles. You like you can only use Visual Studio. Now you have this this ecosystem where you know NuGet is the the number one way that people get things. Obviously, yeah. .NET runs on any platform. It runs on basically any device. Um, you know, there's you know Azure is predominantly Linux based operating system underneath the hood. Uh, you run into situations where we have free tools like VS Code and great support for other non-Microsoft-built IDEs. I, I think, you know, it's crazy to think in just a short amount of time, we've gone from like this very, I guess you could say fixed mindset to this very, gross, give yeah. us every single opportunity to have success, right? Now Microsoft has an, uh, their own version of the JDK. They have tons of people whose sole responsibility is is to make sure Python tooling is great and Node tooling is great. Um, and I think that only benefits all of technology, right? When big tech companies like Microsoft, like Google, like Amazon, they're all building solutions that are going to not just positively affect their bottom line, but also make being a developer less painful. Because I, I talk about this all the time, like being a developer is very painful. Like we spend hours and hours and hours like with build errors, with compilation errors, with things not looking the way we want to. And we put up with all that nonsense because when it works, it feels so versioning good. Problems. Versioning, versioning problems, yeah, naming versioning problems. Nightmare. Yeah, because you know all that pain, the one time it works, like that drives you for weeks, right? Yeah, or months. And, yeah, <laughs> and I tell people this when they're joining tech. I'm like, you have to be, you have to be a little bit of a, a masochist, right? Like you have to be okay <laughs> with a little bit of pain because the reward is so worth it. Um, yeah. And for some people that they just need that immediate satisfaction, that gratification all the time, that slow dopamine drip, that's not tech. Like no. it's very, very hard to get that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about um, when you talked about the bottom line, I think the other thing we learned, though, when you look at Microsoft's adoption of open source is the bottom line does matter. Like the the thing that. I, I, I mean, reality of it is that when the business morphed into a model that naturally lent itself to where you not only could do open source, you really needed it. Like you were just throwing away revenue if you yeah. didn't embrace it. Literally, sure. right? Yeah. Um, even the hard and true Microsoft customers who at one point had this huge loyalty to the pure Microsoft stack, many had moved away from that. And they're like, no, like we're not gonna operate that way. So I think that you can't downplay the importance of the finding a business model that aligns. I think if, to be honest, like if Microsoft hadn't found a successful business model to make money with open source, yeah. we'd probably be very similar to the old days. Um, sure. But it took curiosity to do that. Um, 
and, you know, a willingness to look at things in a different light. But yeah, yeah. but it's cool. It's really awesome thinking about the days when we first brought like the manager sensibility framework to CodePlex to then see now like .NET, for example, completely open source developed in the open, all, like you said, all packages. Um, it's a, it's definitely a different world than it was then. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we kind of transition kind of like the, the chronology in Glenn's career, like eventually you, you left Microsoft and you, and you went to do, you know, things and, and trying to solve different problems for different organizations. Like, so obviously in your post Microsoft career, what were some of the things that you worked on that you look back on and you think, Oh, well, I think we did something good there. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was most proud of was actually when I joined Splunk. Um, that's where I, like when I left Microsoft, I went right to Splunk. That was sure. my, and at the time, um, a lot of people were like, why are you doing that? Like at the time people like Phil, for example, had gone back to GitHub and a lot of people who had been in product decided to go back toward engineering. I love product. Like even though I started off my career as an engineer and I still love writing code, um, I really see the value of having people that are focused on just really understanding the customer problem yep. um, and, and making sure that the experience is the right experience. And, you know, then engineers are building it. Um, and there's a, you know, like they work together, but I, I definitely was not at a place where when I, when I left, if anything, I went deeper into product and product management yeah. than going back the other direction. But Splunk was a really interesting space for me because of my first time really working in a company that was very Linux based. A lot of their company customers were Linux. And it was like, for me, like a lot of my, I had worked with Linux well before I joined Microsoft. I had dabbled with it. Um, but I, a lot of my career was spent like working on Microsoft stuff uh, with Microsoft technology. And then even as I got into things like Node.js, like it was still us doing it at Microsoft, right? Sure. So I, and you had, com you had companies that Microsoft acquired that were doing open source, like Skype was a big one. They brought a lot of open source when they were acquired. Um, but for me, I wanted to like work at a company where they're not like trying to do it, like it's hard to explain, but like, this is just what they do. This is yeah. who they are. I wanted to get like a, a almost non Microsoft perspective on open source. So yeah. when I had the opportunity to join Splunk, I thought that big, you know, the data analytics space was fascinating. Big data space was fascinating and different. Um, so I would say my thing that I was most proud of is when I joined Splunk, it was still a very IT based product. Um, Splunk is a mech, you know, is a product that can gather data from anywhere or you can send sure. it data anywhere. But traditionally, it was deployed by IT. And what was happening was the industry was shifting towards DevOps and some no-ops. And it was just becoming a world where that IT person who just like manages the servers and deploys them just may not exist, right? Yeah. It's like a developer who's deploying stuff, a developer who's doing all this. And they don't want to deal with like setting up agents that they have to like run on machines to like capture data. Um, they also don't want to deal with very enterprisey management things. They just like, I just want to get my job done. Yeah. And so we saw an opportunity 
to create a new way for developers to get their data into Splunk that was compatible with things like containers and serverless and other things like that. Actually, Amazon became a huge partner and adopter of the technology that I worked on. Mm -hmm. And so what was really exciting for me was that was like a turning point where Splunk was trying to figure out like, hey, this approach that we're using you know, that's that's going to limit us. That's going to limit us and, and almost like handwriting's on the wall that the way that we kind of, you know, got our penetration in the market is shifting. We need something better. And it was a lot of work because we had things that kind of did what customers wanted, but not at high scale. Sure. So I worked on a project where our goal was to be able to support 100 million events being sent per second. Yes. And so we had to build out a really, and this was something that you had to be able to run in your own environment. So it was the most interesting thing I ever worked on that had to be able to support immense scale. And you could literally just throw servers at it and it will grow and it will manage all of that for you. And, you know, some really, really large companies that I can't manage mention all got all over this and it created hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue opportunities um, at Splunk through through partnerships that were built on top of this technology. It was a great team, um, definitely the most high-scale thing I ever worked on. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a, like it was just the whole journey of building out that product. And I think the thing I love about product management is when you can identify a gap, a serious gap, and then you can look at like, how do we make that better? Yeah. And you can close that loop. So with that one, we definitely closed that loop and people were really excited about it. And still to this day, you know, it's heavily adopted. And I remember after I left Splunk at one point, Amazon added baked in support for this technology. It was called the event collector, uh, the HTTP event collector. And Amazon like added support so that you know if you're you, you could basically if you're using Splunk you could natively in AWS you could like push all your events and logs yep. that AWS capturing right to this event collector and I that was after I left but when I saw that I was like yeah. wow this is yeah. awesome I mean it's it's <laughs> safe to say like you know if a company or startup comes across comes along with some technology like it, it almost feels like there is some the industry in general is like oh like I want that. And no matter how big a company is, like they'll, they'll gravitate towards it. Like you take, you know, Elasticsearch for instance, right? Like mm -hmm. somebody creates a really, really good tool and everybody adopts it. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you see this time and time again, where you have some, you know, open source technology or technology in general that is kind of built by a community of people, not by an organization, but by a community of people. And that builds this really great track record of, okay, this is a trusted thing because it's not just some company trying to make money. And you eventually see that those things then become adopted by these huge companies, which I think is really, really interesting. Like you say, you know, Elasticsearch, for instance, or Apache Pulsar, or a lot of these like miscellaneous like services or open source pro projects that just all of a sudden get adopted by huge companies because they see it as the de facto standard, right? 
What are your thoughts yeah, in general about open, that? And this one was interesting because this was definitely not open source, right? <laughs> oh, this sure. Was, Proprietary but, thing. Yeah. But, but Splunk started that way, yes. right? Splunk had so much penetration in the market and people loved it. And it did so well that it was able to charge a lot of money yeah. to the point that later on people would gripe about it. They'd be like, well, I love Splunk, but I can't afford it. I'm like, yeah. well, I hear you. I'm like, yeah, people I love Ferrari. Used- not everybody can I, I one of one of my best friends he works at a very very well-known tech company um and he kind of ran up their their observability business like that's one of his one of his jobs and like he would just say like shout, would, out, shout out to honeycomb who really put that <laughs> put that yeah. put that term out there in the market yeah but he was telling he was telling me he's like like we have no option other than to like he didn't. He. I won't say it was Splunk, but there was another provider similar to Splunk. Yeah. He's like, we literally yeah. have no other option. Like yeah. the the feeds are so good. Our telemetry is basically schemed away in a way to work best in their system. They can charge whatever they want. Right. And this is a and this is a company that if I was to say the name, everybody would know them, right? Yeah. And their entire telemetry system is stickiness. Built, is stickiness, right? Even to yeah. the effect that. They were looking to get off of it, and the amount of money and effort that it would take to basically get off, get off of it was the, it. was was not even close Lock to worth it. it. It's yeah. the vendor. It's the fear of the vendor locking. Yeah, but it's just crazy to think that you have that ability to be so sticky for something. I mean, and not to downplay like the value that Splunk brings, the value that others you know in this space brings, but like it's literally just co- collecting log data. And telemetry, like it's not like some super crazy well, AI power thing, but evolved, it is. It's it's evolved way more than yes. what you think. It, it, it yeah. does have AI now. Yeah, it does, of course. Yeah, I mean, it, it you know a big a beautiful thing that Splunk did. I think from a business perspective was the Splunk ecosystem, the apps. You yeah. know, there was like Splunk itself, but then there were all the apps like. Like at the time when I was at Splunk, 30% of Splunk customers use this thing called enterprise security, yep. which built on top of Splunk to give you like a very first class experience around, you know, like monitoring security breaches and things like that. Yep. So in its essence, it was simple. But an interesting thing about Splunk, though, is in as much as there were some things that was lock in, it almost had a reverse lock in because of its flexibility. Because the cornerstone of Splunk was you can send it data, any kind of data. Yep. And so the problem with that was that like once you get used to that as a company, it's hard to be like, how can I move away from a thing that will do anything yes. to yeah. something that will do less than anything or 10 tools that will do less? So, so it, was, it, was re- it was really interesting. But open source story. So... Um, when we were working on, so when I joined Splunk, I took over all their SDKs. Um, and so one of the SDKs we had was a very old C-sharp SDK. So back in the day, remember portable class libraries? Yeah. PCLs were a thing and Xamarin was, you know, around. Obviously, it had been around. And so I was like, well, we need to rev our .NET library. We we need a PCL. Like we should create a C, a PCL because it's going to work for iOS and it's going to work for you know because you could yeah. use the Xamarin 
and because it's going to work. You can run .NET anywhere, so we need to be and a PC. So we can, yeah, exactly. And I pushed for that. I pushed for that. You know, there's a couple of times you make decisions in your. I pushed for that, and Splunk were not huge C sharp fans, so that was like a big fight to be like, no, we should do this, and here's why. So here's a cool collaboration story, though, between me and a guy, uh, Martin Learman from uh, Elasticsearch SDK. So we were building out our C-Sharp SDK as a portable class library. It was all open source on GitHub. Everybody had access to it because it wasn't the core product, right? It was the SDKs of the product. And we ran into this weird issue that .NET had around rewriting around URLs. Um, And I created this library called Purity that would use some hacks to hack around the URL issues that we were running into. Um, and it was well known that this was like a thing in the .NET framework and there was a way to hack around it um, using certain settings and certain classes. You could you could hack around this URL issue where it was basically not rewriting the URL properly when sure. it got parsed by the libraries. So I created this library called Purity and it was out there open source and was like our SDK dependent on it. I pulled it out as its own thing because once you get into like the open source mindset, you're like building something. You're like, oh, this could be used for something else. I don't know what it'll be used for. Well, Elasticsearch picked it up. So the Splunk SDK and the Elasticsearch SDK were both using this library called Purity, but even better, Martin was contributing to it. Yeah. And Martin on Elasticsearch. So I was like, that was just a really cool awesome. collaboration story. Um, forgive me, Martin, if I borked your name. Um, but yeah, the purity library, we both worked on it and it was like, we were flat out competitors, but it's like that library, you know, and I think the reason we were able to do it too, is like that library wasn't our competitive edge, right? Like that library, I'm I'm sure it would have been a lot harder if it was like the core engine piece that both Elasticsearch and Splunk were sharing, but it was a fun story. It it is quite fascinating how you, you know, like enemies make great bedfellows right when like when 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 it's needed right like i always joke about the fact that it's like oh you know not to not to bring up microsoft again but microsoft has partnerships with amazon and google oh yeah the world has changed like google yeah like for instance like you can run android apps on windows now right using the amazon app store so it's like you're running a version of android which is a google product you're running that on Windows using a distribution mechanism from Amazon. It's like the three biggest clouds together, like, and to be honest, like, listen, they all hate each other. Like, they'll also love each other because you, like, it's about getting, bringing value to customers in any way possible. Yeah. And that is what's really exciting to me about tech now is like these big companies that would literally, they spend more, they would spend far more time litigating each other than working together to bring value to customers. And now, you know, like you mentioned, Splunk and Elasticsearch, literally competing products, you know, or big tech companies that might By the way, I don't know if my CEO of Splunk knew that <laughs> at the time. Our well, CEO wasn't really big keeping a huge eye on open source. Yeah. But um, yeah, if he's listening, no, he's probably not watching the show. God free soul, no former CEO. But, <laughs> but, it, but it is quite exciting, right? Like this idea of like all of us working together to, for the greater good. And that's why I think open source is so important because like, and this is going to like not to go down a rabbit hole, but the whole idea of Kubernetes, right? Google Mm -hmm. creates Kubernetes. It 
just immediately get, becomes adopted basically as, hey, this is what we need to use for microservers architecture-based solutions. Like this is what we need to do. This is a great opportunity to, you know, uh, for container organization to the effect that there's like no other like very, very, there are, but not anywhere nearly as adopted. There's other container orchestration mechanisms, but nothing like Kubernetes, right? And now you see like every major cloud having their own managed version of Kubernetes and every big SaaS solution, like whether it's a, you know, Elasticsearch or Splunk or Datadog or whoever has basically ways for you to run their products in your own Kubernetes clusters, right? So like, and all of, and Kubernetes is an open source tool. Like sure, it's managed and maintained by Google, but everybody contributes to all these companies because they recognize if I can make sure that the customer experience using this tool is outstanding, it's going to grow. It's going to basically develop growth of my, of my usage of my product. Right. And that's what's really exciting about open source in general is the opportunity to collaborate and ever like, like I always joke, there's enough money out there for everybody. Let's be real. Like there's no, like we don't need to compete at all. Like there's enough money literally for everybody. Um, I like so, the way you think. I like yeah. the way you think. Oh, I think at the end of the day, what one thing I think that is I love about open source is it really does put power back in the, you know, customers' hands in the sense of like you said, like like look at Docker for example, right? Like so one of my one of my other early things was containers were exploding, and I was like pushing at Splunk with my friend Dennis, like we need to do something around containers. And this is before it exploded, but the handwriting was on the wall, and it was like, imagine the future, everybody's gonna be running Splunk on containers. Yep. They're not gonna be running it on, so we need to figure this out, and they're gonna want to monitor their containers. Um, and so, but if you look at that, like the container adoption initially was all very organic. Um, like Docker was pushing it initially, um, but the community took it on and really saw the value. And then that kind of, and, and that puts power because then it's like, Hey, cloud provider, like, I want you to support Docker or I want you to support Kubernetes. And if you don't, I mean, why does Azure like people be like, Oh, wow. Look at Microsoft. Like Azure has AK, you know, their Kubernetes service. It's like, well, if they don't, somebody's go find it somewhere else. So it's uh but it's that power right yep. it's like the customer is able to dictate it because say look i want this thing and hey service if you don't support it well i'll just go find somebody who does yeah and i think that is good to have that balance where you know i think in the past and i know we keep calling out microsoft but i think it was a very like microsoft centric view of the world like what do we think like what do we imagine we want the world to be and what do we want you to use? And I think open source has absolutely changed that and shifted that in a good way. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, as we wrap up the discussion, like this is, you know, why you like why I wanted to talk to you. Right. Like and, you know, before just for folks that are tuning in, like before we got on, like I, I give this whole spiel to all my guests. And I was telling Glenn, like if you're just happy with the conversation at the end of the hour, that's all that matters. Because if we both are passionate about technology and open source, it's going to convey and it's going to be a great conversation. And I think this has been a great conversation. And, you know, as we wrap up, like Glenn, is there like any parting words or things you'd like to shout out or, or call out as we, you know, kind of wrap up the show? 
I think, you know, we're talking about open source and we had some earlier discussions around like inequities. I know people are tired hearing me say it, but, you know, I think when we look at open source and we look at the way things are evolving, we really do have to work harder to make open source be something that more people feel comfortable participating in. And we stand to lose if we don't, because the more perspectives there are, like we've already seen, like the software that we're building today, we have so many problems where software we've built just excludes lots of people. And part of that is because the people that work on it have a specific, one specific perspective. So, you know, the more people we can get involved, uh, the more welcoming we can make uh, the open source ecosystem and community, the better off we're all going to be. And and honestly, yeah, we'll make more money, but it's not just about the money, but yeah. it matters. So, you know, business certainly matters. I, I 100% agree with everything that you just said. Thank you for that. And I want to thank you for being yeah, on the show. You, this, has been, this has been a pleasure. I we've we've spoken briefly a few times, but it was good to sit down and have a, a, a long conversation. And you know, as we wrap up, I love to ask my guests one final question, and that question is as simple as: If you could think of technology and open source, the community around it, the feeling that you have, but you only had one word to describe that feeling, what word would you choose? possibilities possibilities that's a great answer i love it and you know I, again thank you so much for your thoughts on open source and tech in general it's been a pleasure glenn and you know for folks that aren't already following glenn is is g block on twitter and you can find him all sorts of other places too and you know as we wrap up glenn anything last to say well, you know, you asked, uh, going back to what you said early on, I definitely feel happy. I've enjoyed this conversation. Um, loved the organic uh, back and forth uh, and the way it evolved. And we didn't know where it was going to go, but certainly leaving happy and uh, was, you know, I'm grateful for you for creating this space for us to have the conversation. It was also fun to think about some of the old days yeah, sure, <laughs> and, and, and to look at, you know, it's just really important to look at the progress um, and things that have changed. So we're not in exactly the same place we were, which is a good thing, um, but we have to stay vigilant and can't stop. We still got a lot of work to do. That I couldn't have phrased it any better myself. So thank you for everybody tuning in or listening in the future. This has been Coffee and Open Source. That's Glenn. This is Isaac. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Bye everyone.